Hey there, welcome to Tea with Mara. Thanks for seeking out these recordings and listening. My name is George, or you may know me in the metaverse as Kiyoki from Together with Trip. These recordings are from my live sessions in virtual reality and may sometimes feature other content. For the best experience of these sessions, you can join me in virtual reality. But when you can't, or if you want to go back and listen again, these audio or video recordings will be offered freely to all. To join us in VR or for the live broadcast on our Discord server, you can find our full schedule of events by visiting trip.com events, including instructions on how to join us in VR. You can even join in 2D mode from a computer. If you wish to support my teachings and these recordings, the best way to do that is to leave a review and share this podcast with others. And if you find value in them and you want to, you can make a donation offering right through the Two Hands Sangha website or soon through the podcast itself. All links should be found in the show notes. Now let's invite the bell and begin. So on Monday in virtual reality with the Together with Trip community, I offered a talk on equanimity about letting go of preferences. And um, and also then I've, on Thursday in VR, I followed that up and I took a, a question. I didn't intend to go on longer than Monday, but at the end of that session, somebody asked a question, and I took that conversation a little further on Thursday with a question that was asked by a member of the community around the more practical aspect of that, which was something like, okay, how do I let go of preferences and have that equanimity you're talking about? And we kind of addressed that on Thursday. Both of those talks are available on the Tea with Mara podcast, and you can go back and listen to those if you want background that led to tonight's talk. The three of them go nicely together. And I, I didn't know that really at the time and didn't plan on doing three talks on the topic, but it, it's just kind of been hanging with me all week, so I'm really paying attention to that. Those two talks that I did so far were enjoyable for me, and I, I liked them. But I still felt like I had more to say. I felt like I had not really expressed myself the way I wanted to, or as fully as I wanted to, I should say. And so tonight I want to take it one step further, and uh, or deeper, I suppose, and I want to talk about what disturbs our equanimity, our process of letting go of preferences, our uh, or our fruit of having let go, what disturbs that, our equanimity which could be many different things. But for the person who asked it, and I think for many of us, uh, it's this experience of restlessness and worry, which is one of the five hindrances. It's the fourth hindrance. And I seem to notice more people who encounter worry than anything else, I would say, uh, in my non-tested opinion of that, just the off of my experience, strictly guessing from the people that speak with me about it, and obviously from the, the person who asked me. So worry, or specifically, you know, worrying about things in the future that we think are going to happen, 
specifically relating to how this affects our equanimity and our effort to let go of preferences. So what it is, is in Buddhism, as I mentioned, it's the fourth hindrance of the five hindrances. And the five hindrances are a set of common obstacles that impede or impinge upon our progress, uh, our meditation, our mindfulness in meditation and in the pursuit of liberation from suffering or of enjoying a lasting kind of happiness. The five hindrances are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, which is usually the one that gets me, (laughs) restlessness and worry, which is the one that we're focused on tonight, and then skeptical doubt. The fourth hindrance translates more or less to restlessness and worry. So restlessness refers to a state of kind of agitation or, you know, a a restless mind and and restless body physically, where where you're unable to calm or focus the mind and it ends up showing up as constant mental chatter or anxiety, uh, which then translates into an inability to sit still. So very, very literally is restlessness in the body as well as in the mind. And this is, you know, something that goes hand in hand with the other one, which is worry. That's why it's not the seven hindrances, it's the five hindrances, because two of the hindrances have two parts, kind of two sides of the same coins. So worry, this this one's related to remorse or guilt or uh, guilt over past actions or mistakes, things like that. And it involves in uh, dwelling on past negative actions and the inability to let go of these thoughts, which can be a mental barrier to meditation and mindfulness. And also, you know, worry about things that have not yet happened in the future. And it stands in direct opposition to the third hindrance, which is sloth and torpor. Again, that's the other one that has two sides. And it includes, you know, physical uh, restlessness, kind of like they call it piti or energy, and the mental worry or aspect of, of high high excessive energy in our sits, in our meditation. So as I mentioned, it's probably the most common one that people experience. And it can ripple across so many areas of our daily lives when you're experiencing it on the cushion or vice versa with our hectic lifestyles that we have these days and all the effort that we have to keep so many plates spinning at once, so to speak. We end up with this effort to do everything resulting in us not being able to do anything very well. Least of all, have equanimity or let go of our preferences, which is where this talk started out on Monday. In our, in our practice, you know, we put a lot of effort and energy into reaching some degree of stillness. And even though it isn't true, the story and even the feeling can often be that that little period of worry that we experience in meditation, that moment where we're suddenly thinking of something that we're scared is going to happen in the future, it de- we think that it derails the whole mountain of effort that we've built leading up to that, that we start back at ground zero. But that's not how it works, even though it certainly feels that way sometimes. When you take the time to learn how to ride a bike, for example, falling off of the bike doesn't put you back at ground zero on your skill level. 
you've still got all of the hours and time and skill that you put into that and you still know how to pick up that bike and get back on and start riding again in video game terminology there's a game a kind of game called a roguelite and if you die you start all the way back at the beginning riding bikes and meditation neither one <laughs> works like that so uh so you know if you fall off the bike you get up and you keep riding if you interrupt your meditation practice with repetitive thoughts or rumination and, and all of that you just start back at the beginning of that meditation period but you already know how to meditate and you already already have all of the time and energy you've built up behind that so it's much easier uh, than we tell ourselves that it is the the mental aspect of restlessness is the worry or anxiousness the anxiety and it shows up as, as obsessive thought patterns, uh, rumination, as I mentioned, or, or anxiety. And, and together, they show up, the physical and the mental show up as a state of like hypervigilance sometimes. The hindrance of worry and restlessness, it can also show up along many various stages in the practice of our meditation. You know, it's not often, it's it's not always going to show up because sometimes we have wonderful, peaceful, serene, or you know whatever. <laughs> not necessarily serene, but we sometimes we don't encounter this sort of energy, but quite often we do. And when we do, it's often encountered in certain scenarios. There's it can be encountered in the early stages of practice. Um, beginners when you they first start meditating uh, often face this hindrance right away. Uh, it's just as soon as they start sitting and trying to quiet the mind and trying to be still and they have this idea that they have to silence the mind or be completely still or hold some particular posture. And all of these ideas are counter to what we really are trying to do and kind of stimulate that physical restlessness. So we're almost like creating our own problem with that. And so they say, oh, well, I just can't meditate. My mind is too busy or I just can't sit still or, or whatever it might be. Uh, prior to cultivating some sort of routine meditation, some sort of routine stillness, the sudden drop in external stimulation when we sit and meditate and we try to be still is what makes that internal chatter and restlessness kind of amp up. The, the ego is very concerned when it sees that we're suddenly trying to sit still but not go to sleep that's counter to everything that life has taught our body and our ego to do when we lay down at night and we sit quietly or lay down quietly that the body says oh sleep time and so that's when sloth and torpor come in which is the other hindrance another one of the hindrances but but in our case in this case so we're talking about that's when we start worrying some people experience a lot of insomnia because they they lay down at night and they have trouble going to sleep because they're ruminating about past or they're worrying about future you know and we all experience this and it's very noticeable you know worry might also arise when we begin to sit and reflect on all of our past actions um, I don't ever think of it like that. I, I usually think of worry as future and regret as past. That's usually how I talk about it. Uh, but in, in the canon, they kind of get lumped together in that way. But 
we start to feel anxious about the future. Um, and, you know, our early attempts at meditation can be difficult because of this hindrance. So it's extremely common for new meditators to experience this. Or meditators who sit irregularly, meaning you don't have a routine, you might be a meditator who meditates often, but not routinely. And so that, that muscle memory is not built up so well, and it can show up more for people who don't sit regularly or who have long periods between meditation efforts, which is kind of the same thing, but I'm talking about really long periods between meditation. So, you know, there's an old saying, I used to say it all the time about, it's better to sit five minutes every day than an hour once a week. And that's what I'm talking about. If you sit, if you sit one time a week, and that's the only time you meditate, you're probably going to experience this hindrance and the others a lot more often because uh, you're, you're, you're not strengthening that muscle as often and as regularly as you would be. The next one shows up a lot for people who are uh, obviously going through stress or any kind of transition in life. If you're experiencing big moves or big changes in life, it can come up then. That's even more so if those times of stress are occurring during a time of irregular practice, as I mentioned. So it's, it's really critical. The mind tends to become more agitated and worried whenever we're stressed out. Um, it doesn't take much to recognize that. I think everybody can, can agree on that. All of these external factors intrude into the little bit of meditation that we do get. Even if it's a regular practice, it can intrude on that. Because if you think about it, you're, you're out there in the world 24 hours a day. And if, even if you have a daily meditation practice, it's probably 20 minutes a day or something or 30 minutes a day. So even when you're sitting regularly, if you're also having a very stressful time in life, it can really impinge on that. The other time that it comes up a lot is when we are confronting really, really serious, deep-seated issues. Um, and I would say that's even worse when we don't know that that's what we're doing. A lot of times people know that they have trauma and things like that, and then sometimes we don't. And, and in either of those cases, but especially when we don't know it, <laughs> it, uh, it, can be, it can be more... Uh, aggressive, I guess is the way to say it. But as you progress in your meditation, what's happening is there's, uh, some people talk about dropping down into stillness or whatever. I think of it more like layers of an onion, you know, or, or layers of the mind can surface. And like an onion, you know, or maybe we prefer, if you don't like the idea of, a, of an onion, maybe the petals of a lotus flower or whatever as they're opening up and, and unfolding, you know. I like the way the Buddha talked about, about wiping away layers of dust in the mind. This can include all manner of unresolved emotional issues or past traumas and things that we may have thought were long gone or dealt with or put away. And there is no such thing as putting away trauma. That just means you're going to deal with it another day. Um, so you have to let go of that. <laughs> and that's what this talk's all about. So as a side note, these unresolved things that we're talking about, these past traumas that are unresolved, that we didn't know were still lurking in the dark recesses of our mind, these are very common things that we're practicing to overcome in the first place. 
We all have them. And they're there because there is no way around them that resolves them. So if we already had dealt with them, they wouldn't be those rocks in the soil, so to speak. If, if we're bumping into those rocks, it's because sometime in the past, we went around them. And we have to face them sooner or later. So if we've spent a lifetime ignoring or avoiding things, then our meditation absolutely will turn the soil of that rocky ground over. And the arising of these deeper layers can end up manifesting as restlessness or worry during our meditation. And that's, if you're dealing with past traumas, that would be the, a good case scenario for it. Um, so, but it's not something to fear or dread or be upset about whenever these things surface. Quite the contrary, the, the, the turning over of this soil and producing those rocks, finding those rocks in your garden, so to speak, of the heart and mind, pulling those rocks up to the surface is something to be really, really grateful for. And, and to, as weird and counterintuitive as it might sound, is something to be celebrated and, and uh, really thankful for. It might seem like it sucks in that moment, but the fact that you've accessed that memory or that thing, that past trauma, means that you can now deal with it. Instead of a bunch of rocks that are impeding the growth of your garden, you can get these things up to the surface, collect them, see them, deal with them, face them, and then that garden, once those things are discarded, will grow unrestrained and beautifully, so to speak. Another way is plateaus in practice. Even the most experienced practitioners from time to time face periods where their practice feels a little stagnant or unproductive. And when you hear the stories of the Buddha repeatedly encountering Mara, uh, even after his enlightenment, that's exactly what they're about. The name of my podcast, Tea with Mara, which isn't really a thing that came from the Buddha's time. The, the story of Tea with Mara is something somebody made up later on. But uh, but the the whole concept of the Buddha inviting Mara to tea, uh, a nod to the stories of how the Buddha would frequently be visited by his old friend, the enemy, which is, you know, a metaphor. Mara is a metaphor for the fact that even the Buddha's mind occasionally tried to turn away from the path to lasting happiness, and he would gently bring it back into place. Now, before he was awakened, it wasn't gentle. And that's why he had the big battle with Mara to get awakened. And then once he was awakened and he had already overcome it, he had already faced everything, but there was still some like, you know, maybe he didn't get rid of everything or, you know, whatever, however you want to think of that or frame it. But the point is that over time, those things would start to creep back in. So he would talk about Mara visiting him and they would be friendly. So they were more gentle. And so that's where this story of inviting Mara to tea comes from. So the sort of, you know, revisitation for us of Mara in our minds can now and again pop up and try to hinder our progress and, you know, the efficacy of our practice. But the next one is intensive practice. When you're in intensive practice, doing deep like retreats and really getting deeper and deeper, you know, I, I, somewhere today in, in the course of this, I, I, I found something that talked about how I loved it. It was a quote from Ruth King, and I don't have the quote handy. I should have included it, but uh, 
she's such a good teacher. And Ruth King, if you don't know, she's, she wrote the book Mindful of Race, which is fantastic. But she talks about how we think of stillness uh, or concentration or samadhi or sati or whatever. We think of that as this, this thing that only happens in pleasant times or whatever. But she, the, the quote talks about how equanimity can feel like being in the bottom of an ocean, you know, heaviness and darkness surrounding you. It could feel like being on a mountaintop where you feel like you're the mountain and nothing can disturb you and that feels great. But it can also feel like being in the middle of a raging wildfire. So everything around you is burning and doesn't mean that you're safe. <laughs> it just means that you are not swayed by the dangers that are around you. So uh, I loved the quote and I wish I had included it because it, it, it points out that the equanimity isn't just some blissful thing. It can be equanimity in the middle of some really difficult things. So when we're on retreat during intensive periods of meditation, we have that extra focus on our inner experience. And often it can have the effect of amplifying feelings of restlessness and worry, especially in the first 24 hours of a retreat, because you're sitting there observing the mind so closely for so long when you have not been doing so in your day-to-day -day life. You may have been doing it for five minutes a day or 30 minutes a day or once a week, but you haven't been doing it for 16 hours a day. And so suddenly you've got this giant spotlight shined on it instead of a little flashlight, you know. Mindfulness helps us overcome this, though. And, and as practitioners, we're encouraged to cultivate mindfulness and awareness and sort of gently, gently being the very key word, Gently acknowledge these feelings without any kind of judgment and then guide the mind back to the object of meditation, whatever that is. And over time, that simple but not easy practice helps us reduce the power of the hindrances and helps us deepen our meditation experiences. So at all of those different stages, which is like from beginner to the deepest practices, we can see how that hindrance can show up. So when addressing the issue of restlessness and worry, particularly in the context of an established meditation practice, whatever that is, five, a day, five minutes a day or 30 minutes a day or whatever, and its impact on our efforts to cultivate equanimity, the Buddha spoke frequently about this in many ways across many discourses in, in the canon. So some of the key things on this topic are from the canon are there's a discourse where the Buddha discusses the seven factors of awakening, which are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy and tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. He emphasizes the importance of developing these as a way to overcome the hindrances, including, of course, restlessness and worry. And the cultivation of tranquility and concentration in particular is something that he highlights as an antidote to these kinds of agitations. So really any form of concentration practice, anything, will have the benefit and effect of interrupting this hindrance, which is obvious because if you're concentrated on one thing, your mind is not free to be bothered by another. That's why uh, 
concentration practice early on is so beneficial and why the Buddha always recommended focusing on the breath because you know, that's like the beginning. Getting, getting a great concentration practice is the beginning of meditation, not the end, <laughs> you know, like establishing a really solid concentration practice. There, this is the, you, I don't want to get too far off topic here, but there's a, the, the topic comes up a lot about mindfulness, you know, and the reason a lot of people get upset about the idea of mindfulness is that it, it, uh, it is one aspect of a robust practice. And some people think that it stops there. Thich Nhat Hanh would have said it doesn't stop there. It's just going to take you longer to get to the rest of it, but that it will lead to it. But regardless of what you think about all of that, mindfulness is concentration practice. It's a, you're, you're mindful of something. And then there's so much beyond that uh, as well. So, so if your mind is focused on one thing, like mine is not right now, <laughs> then you're going to shut out other things that are in trying to impinge. Now, there's also uh, another sutta where the Buddha outlines some strategies for overcoming distracting thoughts, which can be applied to this hindrance of restlessness and worry. These include replacing unwholesome thoughts with wholesome ones. We might call this today titration in our modern language. And it's where we practice contemplating the dangers of unwholesome thoughts, intentionally applying effort towards redirecting awareness away from them towards wholesome thoughts, developing an attitude of non-attachment towards these kinds of thoughts and using mental effort to overcome them. There's another sutta where uh, some of you might remember, I think it was, it was either last year or the year before during COVID or something, where we did a lengthy series here in Sangha on the Anapanasati, the process of Anapanasati. It was, and we, we did one step at a time, and there's 16 steps, so that was like 16 weeks worth of talks. And in that, the Buddha teaches mindfulness of breath. That's literally what Anapanasati means, uh, a practice that cultivates you know, concentration as well as deep tranquility. And, and this practice in particular is effective in calming the mind down and reducing restlessness and worry, thereby supporting the development of equanimity. It's very, very thorough and comprehensive from like the whole spectrum of the beginning to the end, so to speak. And there's another one, which is where the Buddha explains the the foundations of mindfulness, the four foundations of mindfulness, which include mindfulness of the body and mindfulness, that's also breath, mindfulness of feeling, mindfulness of mind, and then mindfulness of mental objects or whatever. And by developing mindfulness in those areas, the practitioner ends up becoming more aware of the passing and the arising of restlessness and worry. And that gives us some degree of equanimity as well. So, in fact, this one that I just mentioned, I'd, I'd like to read to you because it's short and I like it a lot. So the venerable Ananda arose early one morning and taking up his robe and bowl, he approached a certain settlement of nuns where he sat down on a seat that had been prepared. A number of the nuns gathered around the venerable Ananda and after greeting him, sat down to one side. So seated, these nuns said to the venerable Ananda, there are here, Ananda, sir, 
a number of nuns who abide with minds well established in the four foundations of mindfulness. Their understanding is becoming ever greater and more excellent. So she's saying there's a lot of nuns here who are really advanced practitioners. And Ananda says, so it is, sister, so it is. And he says, he says, indeed, for anybody, sisters, whether monk or nun, who abides with a mind well established in the four foundations of mindfulness, it is to be expected that their understanding becomes ever greater and more excellent. He says, it is to be expected that their understanding becomes ever greater and more excellent. Ananda later relates this exchange to the Buddha, who approves of his response and then elaborates. Here, Ananda, a monk abides contemplating the body as the body, ardent, fully aware, mindful leading away from the unhappiness that comes from wanting the things of the world. And for one who is abiding, contemplating body as body, a bodily object arises, or bodily distress, or mental sluggishness. This scatters the mind outward. Then the monk should direct his mind to some satisfactory image. When the mind is redirected to some satisfactory image, happiness is born. From this happiness, joy is born. With a joyful mind, the body relaxes. A relaxed body feels content, and the mind of one content becomes concentrated. And I love that because he's saying, you know, we talk about all the time when you catch yourself in thought, come back uh, and begin again. And we say that so much. We say it constant. I say it in almost every talk, you know, in almost every meditation that I do in VR. If you get distracted begin again. But this is the process of, of how and why that works. You know, he says, if something arises in the body, in this case, distress or mental sluggishness or, or restlessness and worry, then the mind is scattered outward in papancha. You know, it, it goes off in a million directions, right? And he says, the monk should then just think of a satisfactory image. The mind is directed back to that image and happiness is born. From happiness, joy is born. From joy, the body relaxes. A relaxed body is content. The mind of a contented one becomes concentrated and you're back to the beginning again. So you're, it's a way of calming down and coming back and beginning again. I love that. He, re, he then reflects, the purpose for which I directed my mind was accomplished. So now I shall withdraw directed attention from the image. In other words, I shall no longer do concentration meditation. I'll move on. He withdraws and no longer thinks upon the image. He understands, I'm not thinking upon or thinking about anything. Inwardly mindful, I am content. This is directed meditation. And what is undirected meditation? Not directing his mind outward, a monk understands. The mind is not directed outward. He understands, not focused on before or after, free, I am undirected. And he understands, I abide observing body as body, ardent, fully aware, mindful. I am content. This is undirected meditation. And so, Ananda, I have taught directed meditation and I have taught undirected meditation. Whatever is to be done by a teacher with compassion for the welfare of students that has been done by me out of compassion for you. Here are, the, here are the roots of trees. Here are the empty places. Get down and meditate. Don't be lazy. Don't become one who is later remorseful. 
this is my instruction to you. So tonight's talk is called Get Down and Meditate. <laughs> and I loved in this particular translation that that was the wording, get down and meditate. And not trying to be funny like I was, but literally that was what he said. He said, look, here's the spot. This is as good as any other spot. Sit down here and get busy meditating. Don't waste your time. Again, always talking about ardency. You know, he was always telling them, you have so little time. Don't waste it. Get busy. And he says, that's the sutta of the nun's dwelling. And I love that one. It's not something you hear very often, but I love any sutta that talks about how ardent the, the nuns were and how uh, equally progressed and advanced in the practice the nuns were just as much as the the men and the monks and I love that kind of thing so I also really love what the Buddha is saying here that sometimes it's hard to cultivate mindfulness or to keep it and that that's totally normal so for practitioners so going back to Monday night when my community member asked you know how do I do that how do I let go of preferences this is directly, the Buddha is answering that question. He's saying, it's not easy, and it's totally normal to have difficulty. Just keep doing it, and don't waste your time not doing it. Do it. So that's really the answer right there. And I wish I could have summed it up that easily at the time. For practitioners facing disturbances, their equanimity is priceless. And it's due to restlessness and worry quite often that we lose that. So these teachings are suggesting sort of a multifaceted way of cultivating uh, that equanimity with the seven factors of enlightenment from the one sutta, employing skillful means by handling distracting thoughts from another sutta, mindfulness of breath, and developing comprehensive mindfulness. So you start to realize that the Buddha wasn't just dishing out random wisdom here and there whenever somebody asked him something. It was a very complete, complex intricate and also dynamic set of teachings you know anyone who practices for a while sees that this is that kind of systematic teaching and uh, and it's all addressing the impermanent nature of our mental states and the importance of of developing our mental faculties and and balance and equanimity so now i feel like i've finally given the full answer to that that i wanted to uh, at least uh, a full introduction to the answer to that question of just how do I let go of preferences. So I'm going to leave it there for tonight. And thank you for joining us. And you can join us next week. And we'll see you then.
You're still here? It's over. Go practice. Go. Chicka